Well, if you have your Bible, again, turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to cover verses 28 through 42. On January 20th, 2017, Donald J. Trump was officially sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, where is he going with this? Uh, this is not going to be a political message. We don't preach politics here. We preach uh, Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. Um, but I want to reflect for just a moment on the inauguration ceremony for President Trump. There were an estimated 200 to 300,000 people uh, present uh, in attendance on the day. Here's kind of what it looked like. Here's a picture. There was, there was a luncheon. There was a parade. Uh, there was a ball. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir sang America the Beautiful. There was uh, Trump's uh, address, followed by a benediction. And on hand, there were former presidents, of course. There were uh, media folks, uh, TV producers, celebrities, business moguls, and military personnel as the reportedly uh, $57 million extravaganza unfolded. 30 million people watched on television for this event. It was a very big deal. Uh, but that inauguration of President Trump barely even compares to the coronation services of some of the kings in some of the countries of the world. For example, when His Imperial Majesty Bokasa I was crowned in 1977 as the King of Bangi, which is the capital and largest city of the Central African Republic, which you can see uh, on the map behind me. It's right in the very center of the continent of Africa. When King uh, Bokasa I was installed, it was a regal affair of the highest order. Uh, King Bokasa came down this entryway. Um, it was announced with a blare of trumpets and the beating of drums. He approached his throne for the first time. He wore a 32-pound robe, uh, bedazzled with 785,000 pearls. On his head was placed a crown the cost of $2.5 million with an 80-carat diamond at the very center of the crown. That's bigger than actually Beyonce's engagement ring. This was a huge, uh, <laughs> this was a huge deal. And there, King uh, Bokasa took his seat on a literal gold throne, with flanked at each side with literal gold angels. This high throne, he was high and lifted up as this new king Thousands of people erupted with seemingly endless praise as the king took his rightful place. Now, sadly, King Bokasa's reign, if you know anything about history of the continent of Africa, was not, his, his reign was not much longer than his celebration as he was run out of his own country less than two years later, utterly failed to do anything he promised to do. But all this begs the question, what is fitting for the coronation of a king? If, if a president's inauguration is such a huge deal with hundreds of thousands of people in attendance, what should take place when a new king is installed? What about the new king of maybe the most powerful nation in the world? What about the new king, the king of the universe? What sort of coronation would be fitting for that sort of king? This morning we're going to look at the, uh, I guess you might call the coronation of Jesus Christ as he prepares for his journey to the cross. Let me read verses 28 through 35 of Luke chapter 19. The word of God reads this way. And when he had said these things, Jesus that is, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, we've been in John's Gospel for the past, I don't know, a few months, and we're taking a break through our expositional study uh, through John to look at uh, the beginning of what's known as the Holy Week or Passion Week, the word Passion just comes from the Latin word, which means to suffer. So we're looking at what would happen on this very last week of Jesus' earthly uh, life. And today, because this is Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the the so-called triumphal entry. But first, let me give you an idea of how this this entire week sort of unfolded. On Sunday, Jesus would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Later that same day, he would return to Bethany, where he would spend the entire night uh, in prayer. Uh, The very next day, Monday, Jesus would curse the fig tree and cleanse the temple, which would lead to Tuesday, where Jesus and his disciples would come across the the fig tree as it withered. Uh, We also have the Olivet Discourse, which is where Jesus would would preach on uh, the end times, calling his disciples not to figure things out per se, but to be ready. Uh, Jesus' authority is questioned again by the religious leaders. Wednesday is kind of known as a silent day. We don't know a lot that took place, but we do know that it was on Wednesday of that week that Judas would strike a deal to betray Jesus. On Thursday, uh, preparations are made for the Passover meal, the Last Supper, uh, where Jesus would wash his disciples' feet. Judas would be identified, as you recall, as the betrayer. Uh, Later that same night, Judas would betray Jesus. Peter, uh, on this night, would deny Jesus three times. It's also called Maundy Thursday. Have you heard the word Maundy? It's, it's, It's from a Latin word. Uh, mandatum, which just means command. It means on that night, uh, Jesus would offer what he would call a new command, uh, which is to uh, love one another just as I have loved you. Friday, we know is Good Friday. Jesus would go before Pilate, would be condemned by the Jewish leaders who would be beaten, mocked, turned over to be crucified. Uh, Judas would hang himself on this day. Jesus would be crucified. He would die and be buried before sunset. Saturday, uh, Pilate would place guards around the tomb, and on Sunday, uh, Jesus would do what no one else in history has ever done. He would conquer death and hell and the grave. He would rise from the dead. Angels would appear at the tomb, and then Jesus would then appear uh, to his disciples. But let's get back to this Sunday, Palm Sunday, the beginning of the week. And from the events that I just read, we're going to see three things about this king, this, this very unique king, this special king. Things that no one else could ever claim. Things that make Jesus, again, a very unusual king. And here's the first one. This king transcends all expectations. He is humbly divine. This king is something that no one ever expected. He is a humble God. Now, this would have been, this phrase, humble God, would have been an oxymoron to the people of first century Jewish culture. When they thought about God, of course, they thought about an all-powerful being, and they were thinking about the God of the Bible. The word humble just would never go to 
describe God. You say, well, where, where do you get this humble God from? Well, notice what happens as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples into the village in front of them. We're not told exactly where he's going specifically, but we know this is Bethany. Uh, he's, he goes to secure for him a colt on which to ride. The word uh, translated colt is a reference to a donkey. And this was a donkey that no one had ever sat on or ridden on, so we know it was a very young donkey. There's a lot of discussion by scholars as to how Jesus knew about this particular colt and uh, why the owners surrendered, uh, uh, let the disciples take it even temporarily. What was going on was, was Jesus kind of demonstrating a, a, a first century Jedi mind trick, you know, tell them the colt is coming with me. That's probably not what happened. It was probably a prearranged deal. Uh, we know that Jesus had been in Bethany many times. Uh, this is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were from. Uh, John informs us that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. So Jesus knew these residents. He knew this place well. And Jesus says to the disciples, Go get this young donkey for me to ride on. Untie it and bring it here. And then he says in verse 33, this is very important. If anyone asks, why are you untying this colt? Tell them, the Lord has need of it. Now, I say this is important. It's, it's actually really remarkable because up to this point, what has Jesus done when he's performed a great miracle or demonstrated divine power and people start to surmise his identity? What has he done? He says, look, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you've just seen. In Mark chapter 7, when Jesus heals the man who was, who was deaf, deaf and speech impaired, Jesus says, see that you tell no one about this. In Matthew chapter 8, we, we, we see that, that Jesus heals uh, the leper. And what does Jesus say? See that you say nothing to anyone. Jesus didn't want people uh, fascinated by, enthralled by his miracles. He wanted people paying attention to his message. But here, he actually just straight up claims to be God. He presumes divine authority, and he makes no apologies. He says, tell them the Lord has need of it. He has the right to everything in Jerusalem, and here he asserts that right because he is the very God. But if that's the case, if he's God, then shouldn't his arrival into Jerusalem look significantly different the people of Israel knew the Scriptures, and what would happen when the people of Israel would encounter God by way of a theophany, which is just an appearance of God? God would make His presence known in a powerful, awe-inspiring way, sometimes uh, with, with billows of smoke or a blazing fire or a thunder or this uh, powerful, majestic voice which would come down from the mountain. They were used to this. They, they knew from reading the Scriptures, being students of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, what happened when a person encountered God. But here, God, the man who calls himself God, is introduced to them by riding on the back of a baby donkey, a child, a little donkey. This wasn't even fitting for kings to enter a city. In history, when a conqueror would, would enter a city to be crowned king, he would do so on this mighty war horse, this, this powerful stallion, and he would also brandish weapons of war as a way to show that he had been victorious. But here Jesus enters actually empty-handed on the back of a little donkey. 
I mean, it's almost comical, really. Have you ever seen a grown man riding a little donkey? It looks like a joke. It looks like something you would make a, a satire, you would make a parody of. But Jesus actually chose this animal. He's not stuck with leftovers, right? It's not like in, in seventh grade gym class where you're worried sick about being the last one chosen. Jesus doesn't have the last one remaining. He actually picks this animal. He chooses this animal for a couple of reasons. One, he, Jesus intentionally enters Jerusalem this way in, fulfill, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 as a way of, to demonstrate clearly that he is the long-awaited king. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus says here, what he does this for one reason, is say, look, I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one of which the prophets foretold. I am the one that you've read about in the ancient scriptures. I am he. I am the long-awaited Messiah. He does it for that reason, but also he's demonstrating very intentionally and in a profound way his humility. The last week of Jesus' life is meant to remind us of the first week of Jesus' earthly life. The incarnation, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God comes in flesh. The God of the universe comes as a helpless baby. He suffers all the pain of humanity to bring us to God. He comes to rule and He comes to rescue, not by taking power, not by killing, not by initially wielding His might, but by losing power, by being ridiculed, by dying. He triumphs through weakness so that His followers can gain life by losing theirs, by repenting, by admitting their needs, by believing on Him, we're saved not by becoming stronger, but by confessing our weakness and our inability. Janine and I traveled nine hours uh, one time for a funeral of a friend, and this was a guy whose life was snuffed out way before, way before anyone expected. He was a fairly young man, and he was killed in a tragic way, and he was a, a guy who was known throughout the community. So we traveled to his funeral, and we were a long way away, and we, we didn't have any part of it. We just went as, as observers, and, and we sat through this funeral, this, this, again, this very prominent man who wielded such great influence, and the whole message of the funeral was, live strong like so-and-so did. And I have to tell you, we were devastated, and I'm, this is not hyperbole, we were devastated at the message of this funeral. The message of the gospel is not live strong. The message of the gospel is the strongest of all became weak. The strongest of all suffered, became helpless to secure salvation for those who had no hope on their own. To provide for us a salvation is free, a salvation we can never gain by our striving, but only by believing. Jesus is humble and divine. He is a humble God. Now, remember I mentioned just a moment ago that Really, up until this point, he's tried at least, and it hasn't always worked because sometimes when he tells people, go and tell no, and what do they do? They go and tell everyone. But he's tried at this point to really say to people, look, don't tell anyone 
what you've just seen, but now there's no more silencing people. His time has now come. Now people must reckon with who Jesus truly is. And this brings us to our second point about this king. This king demands from us a response. He must be rejected or worshipped as Savior and King. You know, as John Kirkpatrick, one of our elders, said in his wonderful sermon last week, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is, don't they? A lot of people have this idea about Jesus. It doesn't necessarily come from Scripture, but maybe it comes from a painting that they saw on their grandmother's wall. Maybe it comes from ideas that they've read or heard from others. They have this idea about Jesus, right? That he was always sort of polite. He was soft-spoken and genteel. That he would never, ever offend anyone. But this is nothing like the Jesus we see in the Gospels, and it's certainly nothing like the Jesus we see in the last week of his earthly life, he presents himself as the one the prophets wrote about, the one who was there at creation, the one who put the stars in place as the Father spoke the word, the king of the universe, the one before whom everyone will bow down. You can't simply like someone like that. You can't simply like someone who makes those sorts of claims. You have to either be repulsed by him, regarding him as someone who's out of his mind, or you have to reckon with humbly who he says he is. Uh, One poet and biblical scholar, Reynolds Price, wrote, if we take the gospel writers seriously, we must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly toward us. Does Jesus bring us a life-transforming truth? Or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? You can't simply say, you know what? I I think I like Jesus. And I think there's some things to learn from him. But I'm not going to regard him as Lord. I'm not going to submit my life to him. I'm not going to believe in him. Let me illustrate it this way, just how foolish this would be. Imagine if continuing with this presidential theme, if I all of a sudden became convinced that I was the president of the United States and I started acting as such, I refused to go anywhere unless I was flanked by men in dark suits with sunglasses and earpieces. I would only travel with a driver and in a long procession of cars. I asked people to address me as Mr. President. I tried, I attempted to go into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue I can assure you that our new elders would not simply say, look, this is a likable guy. This is a likable guy. Let's just follow his lead. They would certainly conclude something has gone wrong here. I mean, there's a problem here. This guy, he may be likable, but he thinks he's actually the president of the United States. He actually believes this. They wouldn't just simply say, look, let's just follow his leadership. They would say something has gone terribly wrong here. Well, Jesus purports to be someone much greater, much greater than the president. He refers to to himself as the Lord, which forces us to make a decision, doesn't it? And no decision, by the way, no decision is actually a decision. 
What too many people, I think, try to do is live in what one theologian calls the world in between. They say, well, you know, I think, I think there's some real motivational tactics we can learn from Jesus, and he's certainly a very interesting fellow to study. And, you know, he's got some good moralistic teaching, you know, love others and so on. So I think there's some things we can take, and, but I'm not really ready to receive him, accept him as Savior. I'm certainly not ready to, to worship him. I'm certainly not ready to center my life around him and his teachings. They try to apply some wisdom to their life, but again, they don't really, they don't really believe that he is their only hope of salvation. This is actually, do you realize this is actually the worst possible response you can have? To sort of take a little bit of Jesus and maybe take a little bit of his teaching and, and embrace some a bit of his person, his persona, but, but reject him. A man who says the things that Jesus says. A man who claims to be God. A man who says, I was there when the world was made. A man who says the whole Bible is about me. You can't simply like this person. We have to completely disregard him and all of his audacious claims. Or we believe that he is who he says he is. And we center our lives around him, falling at his feet and saying, Lord, save us. Now, this is exactly the response of the crowd initially. Look at verses 36 through 37. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's hard for us to even imagine the scene here. You know, it's hard for us to think, because we, we think of paved roads and, and, and tall buildings and structures and so on. It's hard to, uh, for us to even think about what would have happened on this dirt road in this ancient Near Eastern context on a hill descending down the Mount of Olives, looking at, up at the city of Jerusalem. It's absolute bedlam. You're talking about people from all over. It's kind of like Black Friday at Hobby Lobby. You know, you got scarves and shawls. I just wrote that. Is there such a thing as a shawl? you got all kinds of clothing, right, that's being thrown on the ground. People just screaming in utter delight. you probably got trinkets, Flying in the air, right? I mean, there's just stuff going everywhere. People pushing and shoving, jostling for position. Luke tells us that the, the huge multitude of people erupt with praise and celebration. They hurl their garments recklessly on the road, a gesture in honor of a king. They begin shouting loudly, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us. Please deliver us. John tells us in his gospel that they greeted Jesus by waving branches of a palm tree, which was another gesture reserved for a king. Mark tells us in his gospel, the crowd cries out, Hosanna, which is the Hebrew transliteration of the phrase again that means, please save us now. The scene here is crazy. People yelling and singing, crying out to Jesus, pleading him for, with him for salvation, praising Jesus with all they can muster. It was, it was really over the top for some. It was beyond what was acceptable to many. There was a sense of electricity in the air. One historian likes it to street theater. People 
singing and yelling and dancing and observing and throwing down their clothes. But all this actually makes the religious leaders furious. Look at verses 38 through 40. They're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now notice they don't say to the crowd, be quiet. They're afraid to. Again, this is an incredible celebration. So instead, they chastise Jesus and say to him, in, in essence, look, get a hold of your people here. Bring some order to your people. You have people praising Jesus again. You have other people condemning Jesus. This would be, by the way, characteristic of Jesus' ministry. And it's a side note, but it says something about, doesn't it, the futility and the worthlessness of human praise. One minute, they're singing his praises. The next minute, many of these same people would disappear. In fact, many of the same people who were crying out, Lord, save us, would be the ones who were saying, crucify him. The fickleness of human praise. You know, so often we, we invest so much time and energy into getting likes and to getting people's acceptance and to getting that verbal praise, and it can end in a second. It can be gone in a second. Now look what happens this is what we have next, I think, is one of, the, one of the, most, the most devastating and sad statements in Scripture. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Right after this grand display of worship. Jesus looks at the city and he weeps. The Greek word could be translated sobbed. This was not, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the, the cool tear sort of running down his face. This is, this is face turned up, weeping. Jesus wailed as he lamented over the unbelief of his own people. The same people who cried for joy, save us, quickly turned their backs on him. They didn't get it. And they would abandon him to wander aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. Now here's our final point. This king provides a salvation that few will understand and most will actually angrily reject. This is the way it works throughout Jesus' ministry. All the demonstrations that He is the Messiah, all the demonstrations of miraculous power. And here He is fulfilling the, the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures, coming into Jerusalem on a colt, just like the prophets predicted, and then referring to Himself as the Lord. All of these demonstrations of Messiahship, all of these pointers to Himself as the long-awaited King and the crowd still doesn't get it. It leaves no lasting impact. Jesus says these people are missing something that even inanimate creation recognizes. Even the rocks recognize His Lordship and would cry out at His beckoning, but not this crowd. Unfortunately, 
these people are praising Jesus, not because they recognized him as their Messiah, not because they understand their need of a Savior, a spiritual Savior. They're singing and worshiping him because they think that he can give them a better life. They view him as a deliverer from what ails them. In this case, Rome, the tyranny of Rome. They think, finally, someone who can ease our pain, finally someone who can smooth the way for a better life, finally someone who can rid us of this oppression. They didn't understand, Jesus says, the things that make for peace. In In other words, they didn't realize what true peace was. Salvation for these folks boiled down to an immediately improved life. Freedom from the struggle. So they showed up for a minute, and then they were gone. This is the case, I think, with contemporary Christianity, isn't it? One one theologian writes, Many of us are attracted to a Tasmanian devil kind of Christianity, splattering, spinning around. You get fired up, praise God for that, and then you spin out like the Tasmanian devil, ready to conquer the world for Christ, and end up blowing up into a tree somewhere. And I think... I think this is the case. We're on this search for this high, this emotional high. We want a Savior who's going to make our lives easier for once. We want a Savior who's going to make it easy. We see this all the time. I don't know how it's going to work next week in North Alabama, but this being my first Easter here, but in Southern California, the church I pastored was a church of about 1,200 people and on my first Sunday there, which was, was Easter 2010, there were over 1,700 people, 500 additional people on Easter. And, and the place was absolutely packed, and people there, they seemed engaged, they looked nice, they looked friendly. And the very next week, I didn't see those 500 people. They were gone. So many of us view salvation like, you know, you put the token in, you get something good from God. You show up on a Sunday, you drop a $10 bill in the offering plate, surely God is going to bless us. God exists to make us happy. God exists to improve our lives. This is exactly the way the crowd viewed God and salvation as Jesus made his trip to Jerusalem. The awesome, majestic, holy God of the Scriptures is replaced by a kind-hearted, weak-willed, grandfatherly type whose only purpose is to cater to his creation in order to keep us happy. And I have to admit, I'm not much different. I say, God, please just give me what I need. Just, just, just give me what I ask for. And then I'll know that you can be trusted. And then I'll believe that you are good. And then I'll know that you love me. But what we ask for is rarely what we truly need. What did these worshipers on the road to Jerusalem think they needed from God to bring judgment down on the people they thought were ruining the world, the wicked Roman Empire? What they really needed, though, was someone to come down to bear the judgment for them that they deserved because they had rebelled against the very God who made them. We have rebelled against God, every one of us. We have rejected His authority. We have loved other things more than we love God. And we continue to do so. 
What we really need is not for God to make life easier. What we really need is an outpouring of His grace. What we really need is for Him to lavish us with His mercy. What we really need is pardon, forgiveness, unhindered fellowship with a God who created us. And those are all the things that Jesus came to provide. There's a reason that the gospel is called good news. There's a reason as that Pastor Adam and Josh Barnes and I were talking about the designs for, for the new billboards which had expired. And we said, what do we want to say on them? There's a reason we said, we want to say, we have good news for you. We have good news for you. You can go anywhere. Everywhere we go, we get bad news. You go to the doctor's office, you get bad news. You go to your school's, uh, your, your parent-teacher conference. If it's anything like me, you get bad news. He won't stop talking. She won't stop talking. Wherever it is, you look on the evening news, of course, you get very, very bad news. Kidnappings and murder and fires and tornadoes and oppression and things going on all over the world. You can find bad news everywhere. What the world needs is the good news of the gospel. The real Jesus, who came not on a royal horse, but an unbroken colt. He came not wearing the garb of a king, but the clothes of the poor and humble. He came not wielding the weapons of war, but submitting to a cross of wood. He came not to make us better, but to do what we can never do, to reconcile us to God, to save an undeserving people by His love, by His grace, by His mercy. He came as a sacrifice for His own. That's good news this morning. Let's pray.